want to start this morning with the corresponding question to the question I asked last week. Last week I asked, what does it mean to be a man? This morning we start by asking, what does it mean to be a woman? Now again, as we thought about last week, there was a time when our culture had a fairly standard response. A woman was never a pushover. Our culture has always admired strong women. But she was always marked, just culturally speaking, by her domestic abilities, by her natural beauty, and her loyalty to her man. Now, what stands out in that description, and I think I could give you lots of examples from TV or movies, but I won't take time to do that this week. Uh, what, What I think stands out in that description is that being a woman in our culture has always been defined in relation to men. Now, perhaps that's why. Here's where I'll give you the examples. I think this is why there were so many different kinds of women portrayed on the silver screen, the golden age of Hollywood. You've got the femme fatale of Marlene Dietrich, l'ingenue of Aubrey Hepburn, of Audrey Hepburn. You've got the the doomed love of Lauren Bacall or Ingrid Bergman. The list goes on. There were so many different types of very interesting, very strong, very feminine women in our culture. But again and again, the definition was always in terms of their relationship to others. You can just think about the the tropes and types in literature as well as movie and TV. You've got the good or bad mom, well-known type. You've got the faithful or unfaithful wife. You've got the heroic teacher. You've got the homewrecker. We immediately have characters or images that come into our minds with each of those types of women. This is the way I think our culture has historically defined women. I say historically because this has really begun to change. I asked my daughter at the beginning of this series, she's a senior in high school, I asked her what stereotypes she felt in her life kind of being pressed on her. And her response surprised me. For for her, the message was clear that she could be whatever she wanted to be. That that her femininity could have an incredibly wide expression. It wasn't only expressed in the narrow range of pink. And, and, And honestly, that she didn't need to define herself in relation to men. I was both surprised and gratified to hear that response from my 18-year-old daughter. In one sense, she's right, isn't she? We live on the other side of the women's rights movement that marked the 20th century. In every field of endeavor, women are increasingly defined by their accomplishments, not their relationships or their domesticity. That's true in politics, it's true in law, in, in medicine, in the sciences, in business, even in the military. So in one sense, I'm really glad that my daughter is right. But she's not entirely right, is she? Maybe you have to be a little older to feel that. The glass ceiling out there in the working world, well, it it persists. It's still a thing. And it doesn't take long on Instagram to see that women continue to measure themselves and be measured particularly by other women, by their beauty, their children, their domestic pursuits, their ability to be in their home and in their family 
kind of instantly Instagrammable. As we continue our series on gender, we turn this morning to the topic of women. In a world where women are caught between loving and loathing their inner housewife, to borrow, I think, the incredibly memorable subtitle from Caitlin Flanagan, in a world that says women can have it all and be it all, that then immediately judges them as failures when their houses aren't tidy. What does the Bible have to say about what it means to be a woman? And is there any help for women who feel not just the world's judgment on their lives as women, but women who feel their own judgment of their own lives? Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Uh, If you're using one of the Bibles we provided, this is found on page 2, so very easy to find in those black Bibles in the the pews and the chairs around you. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. I'm going to read from 18 to verse 23. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky and every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. We'll stop there. All right, in in, in this series so far, we've seen that God created men and women equal in status and dignity and yet different. Last week, we considered what it means to be a man. Now, we turn to what it means to be a woman. So I'll just make the same disclaimer this week, but in reverse. I think there's a lot here for men in this sermon in terms of just helping you think about how do you relate to and love the women in your life and that you encounter throughout your week. But I am mainly talking this morning to women, about women, for women. Unapologetically, this is a sermon for women about women. Unlike last week, I am deeply aware that I am speaking as an outsider to the experience. Uh, which is why it's so important that I'm not simply speaking out of my experience. We are going to be in God's word this morning. Uh, I may be an outsider to your experience, but God, your maker, is not. He knows you, and he has spoken about what it is to be a woman, and so we are going to be looking at God's word closely this morning. Now, this is, as I've said throughout, this is not an expositional sermon on these verses. I'm not going to say everything that could be said, and we are going to be in at least one other, maybe a few other passages. Uh, This is a topical sermon, but it is meant to be entirely guided by what God actually says in his word. Here's my argument. It will sound very familiar to last week. We'll put it on the screen. Anatomy makes you female. Responsibility makes you a woman but only Christ can give you the help you need. Anatomy makes you female. Responsibility makes you a woman. But only Christ can give you the help that you need. All right, so we're just going to take those sentences in turn. First, anatomy makes you female. Look again there at verse 21. 
Genesis 2, verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. Now, we know, right, from, from the narrative as we've been working through it so far, that, that God started with a male, but he finished with a female. And it's at that point that he says, it's very good. We, we know this from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, where, where we're told that God made humanity both male and female. But here in chapter 2, we, we've kind of double-clicked in, we've focused in on day 6, and this is the moment. This is the actual moment when the first woman is created. And I would argue that once again, it is clear that females are female because of their anatomy, because of their, their form, but not because of their substance. The text goes out of the way to make this point. We, we know uh, earlier that, that Adam was made from the dust of the ground. You see that back in chapter 2, verse 7. And then in verse 19, we find out that, that all of the animals were made from the ground, but not the woman. The woman is made from the man. You see that there in verse 20 and 20, uh, 20, 21 and 22. The woman is made from the man. What's the point of that? There is only one humanity. There's only one humanity who share the same stuff, the same substance that makes us humanity. Now, I spent a lot of time on that point in the first sermon in this series. So if you want to dig deeper into that, I, I would send you back to the sermon that I preached two weeks ago. But though we are of the same substance, we are not the same men and women. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, the distinct words male and female are essentially anatomical references that are a bit too explicit for the pulpit. But just like the wordplay that we saw last week in Adam's creation that highlighted his origin from the dust, remember he was Adam and he was made from Adama, so Adam came from the ground, and that's the whole dirtbag joke last week. Um, there is a wordplay going on here as well in, in verse 23. So look again at verse 23. The man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from the man. She is called woman. The word is isha. Because, then he goes on to say, because she's taken from man. The word there is ish. So isha was taken from Ish, just like Adam was taken from Adama, so Isha was taken from Ish. Now, the two words, Ish and Isha, are actually completely different words. They're not related. But that ending, Isha, that sounds like the feminine ending for all sorts of Hebrew words. So it sounds like, though it actually isn't. It sounds, this is wordplay, it sounds like the feminine version of the word for man. Isha is taken from ish. The point of the wordplay is the same. It's highlighting the origin of the person. Where did this person come from? In this case, it points to her origin from Adam. Now, we actually, and this is just a kind of random quirk of language, we we carry some of that wordplay over into English. So you've got male and female. You've got man and woman. It, it doesn't quite work the same way that it does in Hebrew because that ending in Hebrew actually sounds like the feminine ending. But it makes kind of a similar point. These two, though different, are related. Just like last week, what I want us to see is that females are females because of their created bodies, because of their anatomy, 
femaleness is not performative. There's not a single female in this room who has to get up in the morning and practice being female. You, you, don't, you don't have to try to be female. You just are. You are female. It's your nature. Female parts, both internal and external, structural and hormonal, are different from male parts. And just as we thought about last week, it's not just that we're sexually differentiated. We are, as human beings, sexually dimorphous. There are things about women that are different from men that are not directly related to sexual reproduction. So women are generally, now again, I'm talking about the whole population. I'm not talking about any individual versus any other individual. Generally, women are smaller. Generally, uh, uh, they are not as strong as men or as fast as men. They have way less testosterone than men and way more estrogen than men. Women have more white blood cells than men. And, and actually, they produce more antibodies faster than men. They have greater pain sensitivity, except when they're pregnant. This is true. Women have greater pain sensitivity until they become pregnant, at which point changes happen in their body where their pain sensitivity now becomes equivalent to a man's pain sensitivity. Fascinating. So they have greater pain sensitivity, but they also have more acute pain tolerance. Yes, there's a reason for why it is proverbial that men are wimps when they get sick. We are just not as good at pain tolerance, generally speaking, as women. Women have more gray matter in their brains, and they seem to have better connectiveness between their left and right brain hemispheres than men do. Women are also, just population-wide, more naturally empathetic toward other human beings than men are. None of that is necessary for sexual reproduction. All of it, though, does seem to be related to the one thing that categorically sets females apart from males. Because females have two X chromosomes and no Y chromosomes, females can do what no male can do. If you are a female, you have the capacity, at least the potential, to generate and nurture human life within your body. Not just your own human life, like a totally different human life inside of your body. I know I'm stating the obvious here. But not only can you generate and sustain that human life in your body, once that other human life is outside of your body, you continue to be able to sustain and nurture and feed that human life from your body. That's just biology. So as I said last week about men, I'm going to say it again this week about women. It is simply not true that a trans woman is a woman, full stop. That is simply not true. A trans woman is a male who feels like a woman, who feels uncomfortable in his own body, and who, as a result, begins to perform externally what, what they think femaleness is. And there's no amount of plastic surgery, there's no amount of hormone suppression or therapy that can change that fact. That is simply a fact of biological reality. Sebastian Coe, who is the head of the governing body for World Track, noted gender and by that he means the, the social idea of gender, gender cannot trump biology. And we, we saw that on full display at the Women's Swimming Championships this last year as a trans woman who's actually a man utterly obliterated the field of women that he, he she was swimming against. 
I want to be really clear. Trans people should be treated with compassion. They should be treated with respect. The brokenness that a trans person feels must be acknowledged because it's real. And I would go so far as to say their civil rights should not be denied. Instead, their civil rights should be protected because they are human beings. But like all sufferers in this world, we want to call trans sufferers, we want to call them to repent of their sin and to come to Jesus, who alone can meet them in their brokenness and suffering, who alone can heal them in their sin, just as he alone was able to meet any of us in our brokenness, just as he alone was able to heal any of us of our sin. Now, just as I said last week with males, there's a lot of variation in what it looks like to be a female. Different cultures have different standards of modesty, different ideas about what's appropriate labor for women. So just as I said last week about men, I say about women this week, if you want to know what a female looks like, look around this room and notice all the variety. You've got tall and short. You've got athletic and not. You've got really into fashion and could not care less about fashion. There is enormous diversity to being female. But despite all the diversity, body types, personalities and preferences, if you were born with female parts, if you were born with no Y chromosome, you are a female. There, there is no there is no standard, cultural standard, there is no stereotype that you have to live up to, that you have to adopt or conform yourself to in order to be a real girl. It's who you are by your very nature. Now at the heart of that nature, of being a girl, of being a woman, a female, is the capacity for nurture. We understand that this is kind of hardwired in. It's what it means that if you're female, you have a uterus and I don't, right? Your ability, your capacity to nurture human life is, is hardwired in. But it, but it shows way beyond the organs you've got in your body or the hormones that are coursing through your body. You know, there's a, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of hand-wringing these days over the lack of women in STEM fields, science, technology fields. And I, I think we should, as a society, do all that we can do to make it possible for women to pursue those fields, those STEM fields, should they choose to pursue them. But given the nature of women, as God made women, Perhaps there are reasons that go deeper than prejudice and discrimination that cause women to overwhelmingly choose professions that allow them to nurture others while also giving them the flexibility to nurture their own children, should the Lord give them. Why, why is it that women are overwhelmingly drawn to fields in, in medicine, or teaching, or social work, or human resources, or other communication-oriented or service-oriented fields? Could it possibly be that the nature of women in general is that they would rather nurture and connect with people on a daily basis rather than sit in front of a screen and analyze numbers and symbols? Perhaps rather then denigrate that natural desire. We should celebrate it. And nowhere should we celebrate that more than where that, that ability to, to nurture and encourage other human beings begins, and, and that's in the home. 
Can there be anything more valuable? Can there be anything more worthy than nurturing another human being, a child, into responsible adulthood? So women, whether you ever become a mother or not, the question for every female in this room is what should you do with your femaleness, your, your femininity, that, that I think the Bible makes clear is rooted not in your physical appearance, not in your preferences for, for crafts or for you know, Instagram shoots or whatever, but rather your femininity that is rooted in your nature as someone who is created to nurture others. Now that leads me to my second point. Anatomy makes you female, but responsibility makes you a woman. Look at chapter two, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. To understand the responsibility that God gives to the first woman, and therefore I think paradigmatically to women in general, I think we have to understand the problem that her creation is meant to solve. Now, as I mentioned earlier, in, in chapter two, we are part way through day six. And, and here in verse 18, it's, it's, almost, it's almost like God, like, like, a, like a painter stepping back from his canvas, sort of examining it, notices, oh, wait, there's something wrong. There's a problem. Something's not good. It's the first time we've heard those words. Everything has been good, 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 very good. But now all of a sudden, for the first time we hear, something's not good. What's not good? It's not good for the man to be alone. Verse 18. Now notice what God does not say. He does not say, it's not good for the man to be lonely. Somebody says. He says, it's not good for the man to be alone. Now, I understand why we read alone and we think, oh, yeah, poor Adam. He was so lonely, all by himself. I, I think we relate to that. We think that's the problem because that's what we would be if we were in his shoes. I mean, like starting with our own experience and, and extrapolating to Adam, we would think, oh, I would hate that. I would be so lonely. But we're not in his shoes. Remember, this is Genesis 2, not Genesis 3. There's no sin in the world. There's no alienation in the world. There's no self-centeredness in the world. No, Adam is a perfect man in a perfect world in perfect fellowship with God. I don't see how the problem can be loneliness as we know loneliness. So what's the problem? Why is this not good? Well, notice the context. The man has been given a responsibility, a task. We see that there in verse 15. He is to work the garden and watch over the garden. And then in verse 16, he's told, hey, you're going to be held accountable to this responsibility that I've given you. And it's in that context, the very next thing that's said is, it's not good for the man to be alone. It's not good that he's alone. His problem is not loneliness. His problem is incompetence. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. Especially ladies. Do not take this too far. Uh, when I say his problem is incompetence, I'm fully aware of the fact that Adam is the finest specimen of human maleness that has ever walked this earth, right? He has all the abilities that God intended to him to have. Nevertheless, he is literally not able, he is incompetent, he is not able to accomplish the responsibility that he's been given by himself. He needs help. And so God sets out to rectify the problem. First, God makes all the animals, but None of them will do. You see that there in verse 20. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So what does God do? God makes woman. And as soon as the man sees her, the man knows this is the one. 
This is the one. She corresponds to me. She's literally family. That's what that language of bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh means. We'll talk about that more next week. She's actually family. She is the one who can help me. Not she's the one who can soothe me. She's the one who can help me fulfill what God has called me to do. Not she's the one who can help me feel better. What happens when we wrongly think of the creation of the woman as the answer to man's loneliness? I'll tell you what happens. Inevitably, women are framed in terms of men's emotional needs. They're reduced to solving the psychological deficiencies of men and I know we have a few. Expectations are placed on women that they were never meant to fulfill, and in fact, can only be fulfilled in the Lord. To frame women in such narrow emotional and psychological terms in relation to men is to miss the point of this text. Adam does not need help to feel emotionally safe and secure and well-adjusted in the world. Adam needs help, full stop. He just needs help. So think of it this way. When God makes Adam, he takes him by the shoulders and he orients him over there towards the garden and he says, see that over there? Leave it better than you found it. So we talked about last week. But, But now God creates Eve And he takes her by the shoulders and he he orients her towards Adam. And and, and he says, you see that guy over there? He's literally helpless. He has no help. And he needs help. And you're the help he needs. So the scope of the woman's work in life is just as broad as Adam's because he needs help in every area. We talked about how the garden these days, we don't experience a single unified garden. It gets broken out into kind of three different spheres. So of course, of course we get this. Adam needs help at at home and and with family. That's, That's kind of obvious. He's not gonna be able to be fruitful and multiply without her. He can only generate life outside of himself. He needs Eve, who can generate life inside of herself. But it's not just home. It's it's work and, and society at large. Shaping and ruling the world is a team project, according to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. So Adam needs help out there in that wider world outside of home, and he needs help in the church, the place where God and man meet. That need and its failure is on full display in Genesis 3, which we'll talk about in a minute. I mentioned last week that there was a kernel of truth in our culture's understanding of men as made to be strong, but, but how that kernel of truth gets, gets warped by its narrow focus on physical strength and, and aggression. I think the same thing's going on here. There is a kernel of truth in our culture's understanding of women through the lens of relationship. The problem is when those relationships are narrowly defined in terms of men's desires and men's emotional needs. That is not what's going on in Genesis 2. So let me just say it really clear, right? Women were not created to satisfy and meet the sexual and emotional needs of men. That is not why women were created. God created women to help men in the joint task of representing God's rule over the earth as his image bearers. Now, Adam's orientation might be to the task. He might be task-oriented. Adam, leave the garden better than when you found it. Eve's 
orientation is relationship-oriented. Eve, that guy needs help. He is literally helpless until you show up on the scene, and then he's got help. Her approach to the work is not independent, but from the very beginning is cooperative and collaborative with the man. Now, I think we see this displayed because I think this is, this is creation. Like, I think this is kind of hardwired into who we are. It doesn't surprise me that we see this displayed all the time out there in the workplace when nobody's even trying to think about it or be particularly Christian. Study after study shows that women approach their work out there in the workplace in a less competitive and more collaborative way. It just seems to happen naturally. They're often concerned about their teammates, right? And I've had several men who have uh, women as supervisors talk about how their like staff meetings start. And staff meetings start by the, the, the woman who's in charge, like checking in with everybody, how are you doing? I don't start staff meetings that way. <laughs> it never crosses my mind. I would, they would probably be better staff meetings if I did, but I don't, right? There seems to be something pretty natural there. Not, not every woman and not all the time. But, but, but so often, women are concerned about their teammates. Yes, in part because happy teammates are more productive teammates. But I think also in part because that's who God made and called women to be. And when those two things come together, right, a, a, a nature that is hardwired to nurture and, and a vocation, a calling from God that prioritizes the relational. Man, amazing things happen. Men, we get to live in a much better world than we otherwise would have lived in if it were just up to us, right? It's, it's not surprising that marriage has a profoundly civilizing effect on men. And every woman that's been married for more than a few days knows this, right? he's kind of gross when you first get to know him. And I'm, I'm just telling you, you know, 32 years in, the work's not over. But, but, we, do, but we do get better. We get, we, we get better. I, I don't think it's surprising that there was a Mother's Day long before there was a Father's Day. How many award ceremonies have we seen where the, where the athlete or the performer, whoever's getting the award, thanks his mother for the way that she poured into him? How fewer are the award ceremonies where we see the performer or the athlete thanking his father? Fathers are important, but we play different roles. What I want you to see, though, is that this relational calling of helper is neither demeaning nor is it limiting. It's not demeaning because this is the very word that God uses to describe himself repeatedly in his relationship to Israel. So the psalmist says in Psalm 70, verse 5, you are my help and my deliverer. Lord, do not delay. In Psalm 121, the psalmist asks, where will my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. You see it again in Psalm 124 and in Psalm 146. In fact, of the 17 times that this specific word appears in the Old Testament, 11 of those 17 uses refer to God as the helper or the help of Israel. If this is the way God himself is described, then it is not demeaning to be a helper. It's also not limiting. It's not limiting because given its use with God, we certainly can't we cannot equate being a helper with being demure, silent, in the background, more of an administrative assistant than anything else. Don't make the category mistake that the opposite of helper is leader or that the opposite of helper is competent or that the opposite of helper is someone who takes initiative. Those are category mistakes. I mean, just think about what we see on the pages of Scripture. Think about that, the, the series that we just finished on Esther. 
Oh my goodness. Or, or, or the example of Ruth, who takes initiative so that a marriage happens, so that the Messiah can come, right? Or, or think, think about the female disciples of Jesus. Who was last at the cross and first at the tomb? Don't make the category mistake that the world wants you to make when we think of this language of helper. By the same token, don't minimize or demean that most essential work of nurturing and helping, which which begins in the home, being a mom and, and raising children. It is too easy to to recognize the the, the broadness of of this category that I'm trying to open up for you over here. It's too easy, having recognized that, to then turn and just put down and demean where it all begins, where it stems from. So don't don't demean, don't minimize the, the godly, valuable, and important work of nurturing and raising children. But don't stop there either. Fulfilling your responsibility as a woman created for relationship to help those who need help. And that means helping other women be all they can be, just as it means helping children grow up into being who they can be. It means investing in your coworkers if you're working outside the home. It means understanding that you're called as a woman to invest in your fellow church members so that they can fulfill their responsibilities. I mean, think about Priscilla, who used her superior knowledge of the scriptures to help Apollos become one of the greatest Bible preachers in the New Testament. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18. Wherever God has placed you in relationships, in the home, at work, at church, Women, you have been endowed with natural capacities and you have been called by God's word through special revelation to be a fellow worker, to be a co-laborer in those relationships, making them and their work better than it would have been without your help. Now, I know some of you are wondering, when am I going to say, but... When am I going to start talking about authority and submission? And the answer is, I'm not. You're going to have to come back next week. (laughs) When we talk about how the genders relate to each other in very specific contexts. This morning, we were thinking about women as women. How the Bible defines women as women. And what I want you to hear is that according to Genesis 2 and the paradigm that I think we see established at creation, submission and authority do not define what it means to be a woman. Submission and authority do not define what it means to be a woman. Nurture is what is hardwired into your nature. Relational responsibility to help the helpless is what you were made for. The scope of that help is as wide as the world itself. But the focus of that help again and again and again is people. Now, some of you at this moment, because of your background, find what I've just said incredibly liberating. Oh my goodness, you just said that I'm not defined in relationship to submission to men, right? All women are not supposed to submit to all men generally. That's just not in the Bible. We'll talk about specific context next week. So some of you are feeling like really liberated. But I think for many of you, you already feel the needs of those around you. And it can feel like the weight of the whole world on your shoulders. How many times have I heard married women say, only half-jokingly, what I really need is a wife? That leads 
finally, to my third point, the truth that only Christ can give you the help that you need. Only Christ can give you the help that you need. Flip over to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. We looked at this in relation to the man last week. I want to think about it in relation to the woman this week. Genesis 3, verse 6. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Did Eve think that she was helping Adam when she took some of that fruit and ate it and gave it to Adam to eat? Did she think she was helping him? I think probably so. They had a huge task. And here was something that promised to give them the wisdom to do it. But as Todd pointed out last Sunday evening, Eve was deceived. But that doesn't mean that she or women in general are gullible. It does mean that in a deeply misguided way, in a way in which she was deceived, she decided to pursue her own flourishing and her husband's flourishing on her own terms rather than on God's terms. But the, the reality is that sometimes even when we're trying to help, we can make a hash of things. Sometimes, though, we're just trying to help ourselves. From Eve's decision to listen to the serpent rather than to God who had spoken or to her husband who was sinfully not speaking, to your decision to pursue what you think it means to be a fulfilled woman on your terms rather than God's. Or your decision to to ignore your God-created, God-given femininity and suppress it for some sort of pseudo-maleness. Or your attempt to use a man's love to fill the place in you that only God's love can fill. In all of those ways and more, there's not a woman in this room who has not turned away from God's design for your life. The Bible calls that sin. And the penalty for sin is death. And that death comes in countless small ways before it comes finally at the end. In response to her sin and Adam's sin, God curses the world that they live in. The very act of bringing forth life will now be attended by excruciating pain and childbirth remains the single biggest killer of women in the world. For so many women, though, far worse than the pain of childbirth is its absence through infertility or unwanted singleness. The death of the womb is just as excruciating in its own way as its violent contraction. The curse, the curse that women experience is a reminder of what's coming. The final judgment of death. And of course, it's not just a female problem, is it? It's a human problem. And here's the thing. There's nothing we can do about it. We all, men and women, stand helpless before the just condemnation of God. We cannot escape his judgment because he's our creator. Where are we going to go? We cannot make it up to him with good deeds because every good deed we do, we owed him already. It's not like we've got extra that we can use to make up for our mistakes. And what could we offer in our place? Our life? Well, there's nothing more valuable than our life. And he already has claimed that. We cannot help ourselves in the face of our sin. 
We cannot help others in the face of their sin. We all need help. And that's what God has done for us through Jesus Christ in the gospel. Here's here's how the Apostle Paul explains it in Romans chapter 5. I'm going to read Romans 5, verses 6 to 10. Paul writes, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, will will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved? By his life. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. When we could not help ourselves, God helped us by taking on our flesh, by by coming in the person of Jesus Christ, by living the life that we should have lived but couldn't, and then dying the death that we deserved but could not bear to die. Jesus Christ helped us by doing this for us. So that any of us who repent of our sins and trust in him by faith can be reconciled to God and receive the help that you need more than any other in this life. If if you're not a Christian, this is what the gospel is all about. This is what Christianity is all about. This is what we'd love to talk to you more about. I'll be sitting right down front afterwards. Come talk to me or talk to the person that you came with. What would it look like for you today to depend upon the help that you need that only comes from Jesus? Now, to those of you who have already depended on Christ for help in your salvation, did you notice that Paul didn't stop with being reconciled? In verse verse 10, he says, we will be saved by his life. Paul's looking forward to to the last day when our lives will be made whole and right in every way. But Paul is also going to point out that that new creation life has already begun in us if we have been reconciled with God and made alive in Christ. Paul tells us just a few chapters later in Romans 8 that even now the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The author to the Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 2 that because Christ suffered when he was tempted in this life, he is able to help us who are tempted. He doesn't stop helping us after he saves us. He keeps helping us. Christian women, what does it look like for you to live in the power that comes from the help that Christ gives us today through his spirit. Well, as I said to the men last week, it looks like, it looks like the fruit of the spirit in, 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 in your home and here, here in the church and wherever else God has put you. It looks like the fruit of the spirit in your life, not the works of the flesh. It looks like being empowered to spend your life for the blessing of those around you rather than using the people around you for your own ends. It looks like taking the gifts that God has given you, and they are many and they are varied, and using them to help others grow in grace and in godliness. And does that sound a lot like the application I gave to the men last week? It should. In a very important sense, There are not two different kinds of Christian discipleship, male Christian discipleship and female Christian discipleship. No, there's just Christian discipleship, being conformed to the image of Christ. But being conformed as Christ made you, in this case, as a woman, with your particular nature and with your particular vocation. We all read the same Bible. One of the reasons I don't like men's devotional Bibles and women's devotional Bibles. There's just one Bible because there's just one problem, which we all share. And there's just one Savior 
to whom we are all together being conformed to, into his likeness. As I reflected this week on the language of help in the New Testament, I couldn't help but notice how often in, the, in, in Paul's letters and, and in the other letters of the New Testament, believers are instructed to help others. All believers, not just women, all believers. They're instructed to help others and especially to help the weak in Christ to grow in grace and in godliness, to grow strong in the faith. Paul spoke these words to the elders, who were all men, in the church in Ephesus. He said to them, in every way I've shown you that it is necessary to help the weak by laboring like this and to remember the words of our Lord Jesus, because he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Women of Henson Baptist Church, perhaps you, as women in the church, perhaps you have a unique capacity because of the very way God made you, because of the call that he's placed on your life, a unique capacity to instruct all of us in what it looks like to help the weak grow strong in the faith. I know that's been my own experience. Many of you know some of the trials that, that my family went through in our early years here at Henson. The single most important person who helped me be strong through the deepest trial of our lives It's Adrian. It was Adrian, my wife. I don't know if I would have gotten through it if she hadn't been there to repeatedly help me by reminding me to pray, by encouraging me to persevere. So it doesn't surprise me that this morning she's not here because she's sitting with someone who needed a lot of help this morning. Paul's words, that we would help the weak grow strong in the faith, capture my aspiration for you as women at Henson Baptist Church. Is it your aspiration? What does it mean to be a woman? It's not the male gaze that defines you. It's not even the relationships that surround you. What it means to be a woman is to be made in the image of Christ as a woman. Someone uniquely gifted and able to help others become like Christ. And it is Christ who alone can help you be all that he made you to be. Would you pray with me? Take just a moment. Maybe think about those ways in which you've pushed against God's design and purposes for your life. Maybe envied others or turned away from the calling that he's put on you. Just confess that to the Lord.
Lord Jesus, we are humbled that you would help us in our sin and our brokenness. We, we know that there's, there's nothing sympathetic about our sin in the face of your holiness. There's, there's nothing about us that would naturally attract your help. And yet you helped us. You helped us when we were helpless. And more than that, you continue to help us, making us, recreating and conforming us to the image of your son. Oh Lord, allow us to continue to trust in you and in the help that you give us in Christ and make us to be those who help others find the same help that we have found in you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.